Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we look at how the year so far has been marked by volatility, runaway inflation and fears of a recession, and what to expect from the next six months of 2022 with Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you're new to investing, want to know more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, I'm joined by Will, and we're going to look back over the past six months in what has been another rollercoaster ride in markets. So, Will, I was going back over the team's outlook for the year that was published last December, and actually, it doesn't look too far out from what we experienced. We have indeed seen some of the superstars of the last cycle and the early part of the recession see lower performance as real interest rates have surged. Central bankers have been key to this as they pushed real interest rates sharper in order to contain inflationary pressures. So well done to you and the team. And also, I'm hoping that given the predictions for the outcomes have come true over the last six months, I might be able to persuade you to make some predictions for what the second half of the year might hold for us all. Unlikely. Oh. <laughs> Unlikely, I have to admit. But no, on, on, on the on the outlook, sorry, start off with, hello, Sarah. Um lovely to be on again on the outlook document we wrote back and back in december yeah i mean some of that is some of that looks like prescience i guess but in a way the real thing for me here is that it's the difference in writing about stuff and predicting stuff and the reality um and it's not just you know the sort of the shock of sort of seeing your screens all over the place and markets you know clearly you know really struggling to adjust uh, or trying to sort of violently incorporate uh, the potential for uh, stuff that they hadn't really thought of or incorporated enough previously, you know that 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 you know you can write about it, but when when you experience about it, it, it it's very different. And, and and nuances are important. I think that's really the that's really the lesson. So you can't uh, even when even if you do predict something correctly, and you know we don't see ourselves as soothsayers. No one knows <laughs> the future. Uh, the future is always going to be you know profoundly unknowable. You know all of the disclaimers. You know the the greater the confidence you hear someone predict the future, the less you should trust them. But also, it's not just, even if you were able to see the future, it's, you're not just able to predict, you know, broadly what happens. You've got to get the detail right. And that's super impossible. So, you know, everyone was worried about Taiwan and Ukraine and the run up uh, to this year. Kind of predictable worries. These were the buildups um, that we were, you know, we were told about. The, the, uh, the, you know, the main protagonists were sort of were threatening it. But the timing of them and which of them was, uh, you know, which of them went first or either of them or you know, maybe not, neither of them uh, would have been key for asset allocators and investors. So, yeah, it's it's not it's not easy, is it? And, and I think it, it just the more I do this job, the more I'm sort of, you know, the more I realize that you just shouldn't listen to people who sort of start spouting confidently about this and that with regards to the future. That's just a, a, an opportunity to tune out and do something else. I was hoping I'd get you to do more predictions. I could do some predictions. I mean, in terms of we'll, we'll get to the predictions. Okay. So we have seen incredible resilience from what you guys call the full fat multi-asset class for funds and portfolios. So those parts of the products where it's got all of our best efforts in it, maximum asset classes, maximum active management, etc. So this is particularly impressive in the context of what has been one of the toughest halves in a long time for both stocks and bonds. 
Yeah, it has been a tough half. Um, and you've seen sort of double digit declines in percentage terms in the kind of major stock indices and from mark to market lending to uh, lending to the government for longer periods of time. So, you know, most um, asset classes are experiencing losses with the obvious exception of commodities and also sort of alternative trading strategies. So, so you know, that segment we, uh, you know, the guys wisely allocate to that part of the market. Um, you know, these have proved diversifying investments so far this year and over the course of the last year uh, in particular actually these have been very useful bits of the multi-asset class funds and portfolios like you say but you know if you think about commodities the outlook for that area was and particularly the fossil fuel areas we're finding out that was well supported you know the long-term positive case was supported by underinvestment there were forces conflicting in the other way but war in uh, in Europe has uh, you know tragedy in Europe has highlighted diversification appeal available from the asset class. But, uh, you know, I would say here, you know, this is a usual disclaimer um, and, you know, shooting ourselves in the foot to a certain extent, but you know, one half of performance from your investment products, you know, for those people listening, that does not contain much information with regards to quality and your ability to predict the future uh, performance of that product. The regulator is entirely right uh, on insisting we talk about past performances uh, uh, not containing uh, the answers for the future. That's why, if you think about it, you know, the funds guys, Ian Aylward, Peters, the guys, you know, Chris Bamford and so on, that's why they don't just, you know, performance when they analyze the, when they're trying to pick the superstar funds of tomorrow to populate these products. Performance is only a tiny part of the investigation they do. As you know, Sarah, it's, you know, it's all about like the teams, how they're compensated, the structures, the processes, you know, where they're aiming in the market. So it's a deep, deep forensic investigation. Um, and that shows you also, for those of you listening who just like doing stuff on your own, uh, remember that the level of sort of investigation you've got to do is really considerable. And that past performance piece, although we're very pleased with our performance, obviously over multi-year periods, I want to get that clear, you know, the team's quality really does shine through over longer term, but one half of performance, for those of you looking at investments, should be given very little influence in your decision-making process. So good reminder, Will, we've got stocks and bonds down and we've got higher than expected inflation with central bankers having a really hard job at the moment. And I guess part of the trouble in markets is that the more the inflation sticks around, the harder the central bankers' jobs will become, dealing with an economy with higher interest rates and therefore worse the expected recession becomes. Yes, that, that, that is, you know, you're right. That, that's a good summary. Uh, that, that's, that is kind of how it's playing out at the moment. Though I think it's important to say that, you know, historically, there doesn't actually seem to be, uh, this is, you know, what you kind of expect, I guess, because there's so many forces influencing both. But if you look statistically and you sort of try and look for relationships between inflation and uh, the level of inflation and the size of a recession that, you know, comes about or that is in amongst that, there's no real, no real relationship or no, no statistical relationship. Anyway, they may be indirectly influencing sometimes, but it, it's not a rule. You, you can't cite that as a sort of rule that the more inflation you've got, the worse recession you're going to have. But in terms of theoretical framework, yes, you know, the harder this, infl- this excess inflation proves to purge, the more central bankers will need to run the economy below its potential growth rate, uh, you know, to slow it in order to, to bring it into, um, to heal. 
So do you feel, or maybe does the team feel, that a recession in 2022 or 2023 is already priced into markets after the sharp falls in equities that we've seen so far this year? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to be too precise here. There are a lot of moving parts in the, you know, what we'd say is sort of other kind of embedded expectations in share prices, for instance. You know, so some try and look at how what are called sort of equity market internals are behaving, for example. So how more economically exposed sectors, say, such as banks, like what called cyclical sectors are behaving uh, in share price terms relative to the more defensive areas, you know, utilities, particularly those areas where you're, uh, you know, regulated utilities, you've got, you know, predictable revenue streams, uh, and they derive their answers therein. There's lots of other ways too. However, the point to remember here is that the price of all quoted companies is not just drawing on next year's affected outcomes, economically or otherwise. It's looking well beyond that to all potential future cash flows. A slowdown or a relatively shallow recession in the next 12 months, if that is the case, I think from here is just that that's not really the thing to focus on, I would say. But in answer to your question, I guess more directly, the indicators are not speaking with one mind. Um, our sense is that there may be a bit more, still more to go, um, but we're in highly uncertain territory. And, and you know, one thing just to think about is, you know, you've got uh, you know, this, 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 this idea that we've been talking about that, you know, the dirty secret for central banking is we don't know how inflation expectations are set. Uh, how, you know, our long term, medium term, medium to long term, uh, if we, if any of us have such a thing, uh, expectations with regards to inflation. That's the key here. That's what central bankers are looking at measurements of. And we're not very good at measuring it either. And that's, for instance, if another, there's another spike higher in certain measures of US inflation expectations, you can expect central bankers would have to respond in the short term. Okay. Like I say, highly uncertain territory. Well, that's fair. But what can we say about the recession that might lie ahead? Do you feel like we are on the edge of a real abyss like the one we experienced in 2008, for example? on this, you know, on public record, but our sense is not. There are just not the excesses to correct. And remember, that's the role that recessions play. You know, they come along when, mostly, not most, some recessions, you know, the pandemic wasn't a function of massive excess, although it came at the end of a very long economic cycle. You know, that's not how we perceived it. And it was an external event anyway, obviously. But there are not, like I say, there are not the excesses to correct, unlike pre-great financial crisis, say, or you know, tech bubble or those kind of things. Remember, like I say, we've already had anyway a, a, a pretty kind of Orgean clear out in the last couple of years. Private sector balance sheets still look healthy across much of the world, very healthy in the most important corners, to be honest. Inflation needs to be contained, but we may see um, US central bankers accept a higher level inflation, you know, potentially in order to avert the worst case scenarios. There will come a stage with balancing out that kind of, you know, how much damage do you want to do to the economy to accept, you know, it'll be a trade-off, one suspects, uh, to whatever extent those rough tools will allow uh, that trade-off to be found. Uh, however, like I say, the next few months are really still going to be quite tough. The, you know, data on the world economy will trend drearier as tighter kind of monetary policy, you know, financial conditions, they haul back activity. Um, they'll soften demand a little bit from the pace it was on previously. Uh, we can't say too much about the path of inflation and inflation expectations from here. As I've just said, we, we have to be honest, we just don't know. Uh, as we've mentioned before, the inflation data, CPI, 
etc. is up against some pretty hefty negative forces this summer in the US uh, as we lack the arrival of stimulus checks last year. Uh, that should help pull it lower over the course or at least exert an influence lower. Uh, however, inflation expectations are still the curveball. There are multiplying signs around the world that higher current prices are seeping into our collective expectations, businesses and you know, us, which is the really dangerous bit. That's where the return of the 1970s becomes a little more dangerously real. And that's what will get the central bankers, as they are already, you know, really pushing hard on interest rates. Good example being, you know, we've done the 75 basis points we've just seen put on in the US in response, really, to that bump in consumer uh, mid to long term inflation expectations. Well, as we look at the second half of the year, what do you think we should be keeping an eye out for? Well, well, beyond that, I mean, if we're looking at events and, you know, all the, I'm going to do the boring disclaimers again, you know, that the risk to do a bad analogy, which I'm sure I've flogged to death over the years on this podcast, uh, is that you can sort of, you know, if you're thinking about risk ahead of you, you can perceive it as an iceberg. The bits that you can see are really quite small uh, in proportion to the stuff that's under the water. It's the unknowable bit of the future. So people tend to, just as a and Rob Smith will tell us all about this on a regular and JP and all the guys they are all well versed in this behavioral stuff. But they will say that, you know, don't anchor to those events because a market pricing will pretty efficiently already incorporate, you know, the range of potential outcomes at those events. But also it's difficult to get an edge there, but also just for a wider investment point, remember that the stuff that you can't see is the really important uh, important stuff to uh, to worry about and therefore not worry about because that's why you focus on long term uh, with investments where the tendency is for the good news to outweigh the bad. But anyway, to try and answer your question, sorry, that was a bit of a rambling intro, but one area that, that people are looking at at the moment is US midterm or looking in the road ahead is US midterm elections. And this is obviously expected to be going to be tough for the Democrats. And that's the expectation. And that's what the betting markets are telling us. And that actually is in the, the norm in US politics. If you think about the role of midterm, certainly in recent history anyway, there are some things suggesting that it may not be quite as severe as some suspect or seeing some making the point. But first, or some, um, some experts make the point that public opinion measures tend to be a stronger prediction, a predictor of election outcomes than um, what you call economic variables, which is what often people are talking about with regards to uh, the outcome for this uh, coming midterms. Uh, and the latest polling suggests that uh, the Republican uh, gains might be closer to the historical average. And, and second, that uh, the number of competitive seats in the upcoming election is low uh, relative to history. But, you know, remember, this is this should be a low confidence view. These are potentially you know, unpredictable uh, and, and we shouldn't sort of anchor our investments around anything to do with this. But there is actually an associated or an interesting potential kink that sort of links to how, to me being part of the problem actually, or to you and me being a small part of the problem, as with all commentators, is really that it's associated with inflation expectations. And like I say, these are the metrics that US and global central bankers are really going to be obsessing over in the next few quarters. And there are some plausible worries about, you know, more people talk about inflation, and remember, this is going to be a key subject on the campaign trail in the US, the more people are talking about inflation expectations, and it's all over the news anyway, you can't just 
pinpoint politicians for this. Uh, you think about it in the UK, everyone is worrying about inflation. It's part of the news. People want to hear about it. Uh, all of our, you know, podcasts and rival podcasts and all of those the echo chambers we're in, they're all full of the words inflation. Uh, and there is some evidence. You, you can't link it very strong academically to, it's difficult to sort of take it on, but it, it could do, it, it, it might be interesting. Well, you're saying that you and I here sat talking about inflation and the politicians that will get consumers and businesses worrying about the future of inflation. Is there really evidence for that? Uh, there's not as such, like I said, you know, remember that we're still pretty in the, pretty much in the dark as to how inflation expectations are actually set. Uh, and that's not for want of trying, really. Honestly, this has been an obsession for sort of, you know, for many decades, you know, for, 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 if you think about it. Some of those, I'm much more than that as well. Sorry, I'm understating the, uh, the economic history there, but, uh, or the study of it, but some of the more recent attempts do highlight that consumers and businesses are sensitive to certain types of information in how they update their inflation expectations. It's not a massive link to link these academic studies to campaign trail ads, highlighting inflation as the number one problem per se. Uh, I'm not saying that any, uh, with regards to any country in particular, but just, just as a sort of neutral example. It's just something to keep an eye on, I think, and it creates a bit of danger for those thinking now is the time to get into stocks, if you think about it. It's not to say, you know, this, this shouldn't be the only thing that influences your decision making on that front. And I'm not talking about all of your investments. This is tactically, uh, you know, I remember we do that our TAA team, our asset allocation forum, uh, they focus purely on the sort of small tweaks to our overall asset allocation, a package of positions uh, that really is just positioned for the next uh, 6, 12, um, maybe slightly beyond that um, in terms of positioning. So, And these are done at the edges of the portfolio. So this is not, none of this should be seen as uh, what to do in and out of markets. But if inflation expectations do respond, if you think about it, to sort of, you know, the more we talk about inflation as a society, and I'm not just talking about politicians, central bankers might be boxed in the short term further into a corner. Um, and that's unlikely to be good for equities in the short term because there's an adjustment to be made across valuations and so on. So it just makes, and also sort of short term economic outlook. So, well, you've talked a lot about the US. Can you fit that into the outlook for the rest of the world? Is it different or not? Is it different? Yeah, they're facing something. They're all facing something a little different, actually. I mean, China appears to be returning from the Omicron slump a little bit. So there's sort of, you know, there's buds of uh, recovery there, which is very encouraging. Um, US, they're less worried about com the commodity shock in many ways. And they are because uh, they are, you know, net energy independent, more or less. Uh, you know, high gas prices are a problem for consumers but they're more of a sort of internal transfer or problem. It's recirculated in the economy to an extent. However, they are worried um, about the, at least on a net basis, sorry, but they are worried about the labour market as a source of inflation. They have something like 11.5 million open jobs with 6 million people looking for them. Those open jobs need to cool significantly. Europe, for its part, are much more worried about the commodity shock than its labour market, which is significantly cooler. The UK, though, is really the only one with both problems, commodity shock and uh, and uh, what's going on in prices and pri uh, labour market ex uh, and um, inflation expectations as a result. But also the hot labour market is contributing to those inflation expectations as well. And this is part of what makes the short term outlook here so challenging. One thing to note on those job openings in the US, though, for those looking for a little bit of reassurance, maybe in the short term, there is some evidence and intuition to show that it's easier for the central bank to try and manage job openings lower uh, 
whilst avoiding a recession than it is for them to manage a significant move higher in actual unemployment and, uh, and, and avoid a slump. Remember also, and this is really important, that a lot of stylistic analysis on what to do in a recession what it looks like, et cetera, based on historical data, data it, it perches, perches pretty precariously on a tiny data set. There just haven't been enough recessions in the post-war period, certainly not enough to make robust inference. Be careful. This nuance gets lost in kind of, you know, the precious, you know, the grab for precious marketing air in this industry. Uh, that's a game that requires conviction, strongly held reviews, remember, but those are often the ones to tune out. Those big confidence voices about what's coming and what isn't and what it means and what recessions, what point of the recession you're in. Yeah, tune out. I'll take your advice. <laughs> excellent. So um, maybe a final point. What about the commodity markets? They provided an excellent service to our multi-asset class funds and portfolios in the first half. Can that continue? Yeah, I, I mean, um, the setup is still pretty attractive for commodities in many ways, or some 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 important sort of subsectors within the commodity market. And underinvestment in the last few decades is, is kind of a, a key long-term investment and prospective investment argument. That underinvestment will take a, a while to correct. The point really is that we clearly need fossil fuels to transition to a, a to a cleaner economy. We can't just stop because what you get otherwise is that the, the most vulnerable parts of society have to pay for your transition to a cleaner economy, and that can't be the right thing. That that can't be the right way to go about it. So it needs to be orderly. But underinvestment should keep prices quite high. Um, it'll take a while to, to to correct, like I say. Also, if there's no need for a major recession, then the demand side of the equation is likely still supportive. We shall see. Uh, commodities is not an asset class I feel comfortable predicting in the short run, I have to admit. JP and the others might feel more confident. I'm not sure they would. It's more about the embedded exposures. As you know, we've talked about this a huge amount. But the reason why the team added so much commodities to the range of funds and portfolios back in 2021 at the beginning was because of the embedded exposures you get from that diversified access, the shapes of returns over the longer term that, that we are interested in. They add diversifying exposure. That's the important reason. That's the role they play in the team, the investment team that we put together for you, uh, for our clients. And that argument still holds at the moment. Thank you, Will, for helping us to look back over the last six months and think about the future. I look forward to talking with you again soon for another word on the street. And thank you to everybody listening. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in the future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We do not offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you're unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.